welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with today's co-hosts, Melissa Colston and Adam Wheeler. Hello. Hey. So today, Adam is filling in for Michael Cunningham, who is out on paternity leave. So a big congratulations to Michael and his wife, Sarah Lynn, on their new addition. Yay. Yeah, congrats. <laughs> thank and thank you, Adam, for joining us. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what you do here at JCPL? Sure, yeah, I can do that. So uh, I am the teen outreach librarian at the library. So I go out to middle schools and high schools, and I take books and do programs. Just kind of extend our services out in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is another way of doing that. Yeah, so, exactly. So. There might be some people who recognize my voice. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and Melissa, you have some news for our Books and Bites listeners as well. I do. I'm sad to say it's a bittersweet goodbye, but I'm. this is my second to last day at JCPL. Uh, and I'm moving on to a new job at the Kentucky Department of Libraries and Archives. I've been so happy to be part of the podcast and work here at JCPL, but found a, a new opportunity, and I'm excited for what I can do in Frankfurt. Yeah, well, we're really going to miss you, and we're glad we got at least one more episode out of you. <laughs> Just under the wire. <laughs> Before you move on. Congratulations on the, on the big life change. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. The podcast has been just one of the most fun things I've been able to do here, so I'm really sad to miss it, but I know it will continue on with great recommendations, even if I'm not here to give them. <laughs> well, we'll uh, maybe sneak in some recommendations from you every now and then, too. Oh, yeah, I can submit them. <laughs> we'll take them. All right. <laughs> um, so today we're talking about teen and middle grade books, uh, which is one of the reading prompts in the Books and Bites Reading Challenge. And I know Melissa reads a fair bit of teen and middle grade books. I do. I kind of go through phases where I, you know, can't deal with the angst and the, the childhoodness. <laughs> but then, you know, sometimes I that's just what you need and something that is lighter and maybe uh, a little comforting sometimes, a little mm -hmm. bit easier to read or makes you laugh. Uh, YA and middle grade books are just, they can be a lot of fun even though they're written about kids. Yeah. Um, Sometimes because they're written about kids. Exactly. <laughs> what about you, Adam? Do you read a lot in that Well, I should hope group? I do read some <laughs> YA books. But yeah, I think they're, they're great because they tend to get to the point about things, and there's not a lot of, like, pretension, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know? You're cycling around about characters, and this is what they're thinking, and this is what they're thinking. Do something. Let's just right. get to the yeah, point. Let's, let's make something happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I do. Ha I have to. I have to confess that I didn't realize that we were all doing teen and middle grade books <laughs> on this one. <laughs> but that's fun. It's good. We have a theme. It's like there's a theme for the podcast. It's great. Every month. Yeah. Who would have Adam is a regular listener. <laughs> <laughs> so for listeners who maybe aren't quite as aware of what YA and middle grade means. Um, Adam, do you have like a Sure, yeah, like I, can, I can spiel that. So middle grade is targeted for uh, kids in grades four through six. 
uh, and then teen, as far as we consider it here, teen would be um, grade six through 12, so middle grade kind of falls into that category. Uh, if we're saying young adult, that generally, that can be older teens, it can sometimes be younger teens, and sometimes it's teens who are like 18, 19. Mm-hmm. So okay. very young so, adults. So when we talk about those books though, are we talking about like who they are targeted towards? Yes. Like who they're marketed towards, who they're written about, that kind mm-hmm. of thing? Yeah, so uh, most of the time they, well, if they are YA, they're targeted towards young adults. Um, but then also, uh, generally, they're going to feature young adults as the main characters as well. Um, same for middle grade. If it's a middle grade book, it's probably going to feature someone in grades four through six. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and if you're taking the Books and Bites Challenge and you're not sure where to find those books, um, for the YA books, just any book in the teen library should qualify. Uh, Children's has a wider variety of ages um, in the Children's Library. So you might, it might be a little trickier to find a middle grade novel, um, but of course anyone in the children's library can point you in that direction. Um, and we can also help you, help you identify them, um, looking them up in our novelist database. Um, mm-hmm. So there's lots of different ways of finding those books. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I can also add, if you're a teen that is interested in middle grade novels, if you don't want to go in the children's library, we have a lot of the popular ones in the teen library as well. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of crossover. For sure. So like we were just talking about, my first book is sort of debatably young adult. When I read it initially, I read it as an ebook, and I was completely convinced it was YA. But then when I looked it up in our catalog to check it out to review for the podcast, we have it cataloged in the adult fantasy section. Um, the author, responding to a question on Goodreads, said, quote, Like most of my work, I like it to be enjoyable when you read it at 15, and equally enjoyable for different reasons when you reread it at 50. So I personally would say this counts for YA. And I also loved it so much that I started reading it again when I picked it back up for the podcast. But you can use your own judgment there. Uh, The book is The Novice Dragoneer by E.E. Knight, and it follows the story of Illith, a 14-year-old orphan who once met a dragon and his rider as a child and has dreamed of becoming a dragoneer ever since. So, like we said, it's about a 14-year-old, so it kind of fits in that category even though our catalog doesn't agree um anyway illith makes her way to the serpentine dragon fortress to apply as a novice and to learn how to care for and ride dragons once she's admitted to the academy illith encounters plenty of physical social and political challenges that she has to learn how to navigate it's a coming-of-age story that moves pretty slowly but i would say that it's a uniform slowness which i definitely prefer to an even pacing I enjoyed the slow pace, but that may be a problem for others, and it definitely is a problem for people in Goodreads. Um, <laughs> it's not a short read, and it's not a fast read. Um, but I, when I read it the first time, that was exactly what I was looking for. I wanted something to just sink into and read for a while. I think it's around 500 pages, so like it's a story to spend some time with. 
Um, I have my own internal YA angst meter, and this ranked very low on the meter, <laughs> which is a good thing sometimes. <laughs> sometimes I can handle it, sometimes I can't. Um, but this one, it, it works for it. It's written in the third person, which helps a lot. And I, Illith just isn't that angsty of a girl, so the writing sort of suits her personality. The dragons in the book can converse with the humans, and I really liked everything about them, from their mythology to the way they interact with the humans in the story. I would recommend it for fans of Naomi Novik's Temeraire series, which I know there are many out there. Um, I also would recommend it for people that have read Tom Miller's Philosopher's Flight and Garth Nix's Sabriel series, which is another middle grade YA book that I've recommended on the podcast before, and it is absolutely delightful. I would have recommended it again if I hadn't done it a year ago or whenever we talked <laughs> about it. It's one of my favorite <laughs> series. Um, Tim Curry reads the audio. Highly recommend that mm -hmm. as well. Anyway, um, the audio for no Novice Dragoneer is also quite good. Uh, I started listening to it to figure out how to pronounce some of these names because they're not the easiest. Anyway, as far as what to pair with Novice Dragoneer, when Illith is first admitted as a novice, she has spent nearly a week sitting on the stoop outside the academy's gates and is in rather rough shape. The master of novices delivers her to Joai, the campus nurse of sorts, who immediately prescribes a bath, chowder, and a sausage roll. I'm sure the chowder in the book would be seafood, as the academy overlooks a vast sea and fishing boats crowd the coastline, but I decided to find a corn chowder since I'm not a huge fan of fish. The Roasted Corn and Chorizo Chowder from the London Cookbook by Alexandra Crapazzano was just the ticket. I saved some time by buying fro frozen roasted corn from Trader Joe's and made it vegetarian by using their soy chorizo. It was sweet and savory and very warming, perfect for a cold and rainy night. Mm, that sounds delicious. It was. It's really good. I've been eating on it for a couple days and it has only gotten better. <laughs> So I think it's funny, you had a really chill book about dragons, and I actually picked a really chill book about dragons, too. Oh, look at so that. It meshes that nice? so well. Uh, so <laughs> I, there's a dragon in my one of my books, too. Dragons. <laughs> we all dragons. plan this. So it's MG and YA books about dragons. That's yeah. the theme. Or maybe they just have a lot of dragons in those books, anyway. Whatever. Yeah, it all works. Uh, I'm, so I'm starting today with The Tea Dragon Society, a middle grade graphic novel written and illustrated by Katie O'Neill. Originally published in 2017, this title has won the 2018 Will Eisner Comic Industry Award for Best Publication for Kids Age 9 to 12. Uh, it's gotten another 2018 Eisner Award for Best Webcomic, so evidently it existed as a webcomic before it was published in print. Uh, a 2018 Dwayne McDuffie Award for Kids Comic, which is sponsored by Kids Read Comics, and was a co-winner for the 2018 Harvey Award for Best Kids or YA Publication. Uh, the Tea Dragon Society was also featured on the American Library Association's 2018 Rainbow List, which highlights LGBT plus books for teens and young readers. Uh, O'Neill also published the Tea Dragon Festival in 2019. I haven't gotten to it yet, <laughs> but I believe the book takes place in the same world, but might actually follow different characters from the ones in the Tea Dragon Society. 
So it sounds like this could count for the graphic novel challenge as well as your middle grade YA challenge. Yeah. Which could be very, Covering a very lot handy. of books yeah. with that one. Accidental multi-category. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh, the story itself opens with half-goblin Greta, she's our main character, uh, learning blacksmithing from her fully goblin mother. There's allusion to past times when their iron was an everyday necessity for war or industry. But times have changed, life has slowed, and there seems to be peace now. Though Greta questions why they smith weapons that will never see a battlefield, she learns to appreciate blacksmithing through her mother's devotion to the craft. Uh, while she's traveling home from the forge, Greta follows distressed cries to find a little dragon cornered by dogs in an alley. Where other fantasy stories may use this opportunity for a fight scene, I was actually really surprised because there was a compassionate moment where Greta saw the dogs and realized they're not cruel, they're just starving. Um, so she finds a peaceable solution by offering some meat to the dogs, and then she can get to the little dragon safely. Uh, I think it's a really wonderful setup for the whole book, which approaches fantasy with an easy slice of life. Continuing with the story for a little bit, while not giving any major spoilers, uh, Greta finds the dragon's owner, Hesekiel, in his tea shop on the edge of town. After expressing thanks to Greta, Hesekiel extends an offer for Greta to visit any time she'd like to learn about the care and feeding of creatures like the one she saved, tea dragons. Uh, I should probably mention that the dragon she saved is called Jasmine, and it sprouts little leaves that can be used for a wonderful jasmine tea. You'll see other types of tea dragons in the story, and there's an adorable tea dragon handbook section which describes the care and feeding of these imaginary creatures, uh, as well as a short bestiary of the tea dragon seen in this book. Overall, Katie O'Neill shows a unique fantasy world that features a range of skin tones and inclusion that reminds me of Rebecca Sugar's Steven Universe. While there are callbacks to the world's more violent past, the current story focuses on interpersonal connections and personal growth. This book has a sweet, soft illustration with a manga-like feel, and the exclusion of hard outlines combined with a lush, earthy color palette gives the images a relaxing, immersive effect that pairs perfectly with a nice cup of tea. If you'd like to make a special beverage to pair with this book, I propose a non-traditional approach to a London fog, which is typically made with Earl Grey tea, steamed milk, vanilla, and sweetener. For our twist, pick your favorite tea dragon. I am personally partial to Jasmine. Uh, steep a bag of their associated tea in half a cup of warm water. Once it's done steeping, add a quarter cup of warmed whole milk and sweetener to taste. Uh, and if you have the equipment or you have a whisk and willpower, you can top with, uh, you can top with frothed milk. That sounds delightful. It does. <laughs> yeah, Both it's book really and drink. <laughs> <laughs> So my first book is Egg and Spoon by Gregory Maguire, and I have to thank our former teen librarian, Kendall Haddix, for recommending this book ages ago, and I'm glad that I finally got to it. Egg and Spoon is a teen historical fantasy novel set into motion when two young girls, Elena, a peasant trying to care for her dying mother, 
and Ekaterina, a wealthy girl on her way to visit the Russian Tsar with her great-aunt Sophia, accidentally switch places. Much of the book is told in chapters that alternate between the two girls and their separate adventures. Elena poses as a Katerina on Aunt Sophia's private train to St. Petersburg, where she hopes she'll be able to ask the Tsar to release her brother from the army. Meanwhile, Ekaterina tries to get from Elena's village to St. Petersburg, accompanied by none other than Baba Yaga, the witch of Russian folklore. Their fates collide in St. Petersburg, and along with the Tsar's godson, Prince Anton, the girls continue their adventures with Baba Yaga, her familiar, Muster, and Dum Doma, Baba Yaga's house that carries her from place to place on its chicken legs. Egg and Spoon is a descriptive and whimsical tale filled with elements from Russian folktales. The firebird and its egg play a central role to the plot, and there are dancing Matryoshka dolls, a disgruntled ice dragon, and soldiers born from the dragon's teeth. I was particularly drawn to Elena's story. Maguire's lyrical descriptions of her poverty, loneliness, and grief over her mother's illness are especially moving, as when he describes her mother's nesting dolls. Quote, nearly round on the bottom, like a pear, and softly narrower on top. The shape of a slow teardrop. That's a mother for you, unquote. In comparison, I found Baba Yaga's appearance in the story a bit jolting. Her cleverness and contemporary references threaten to break the story's spell, as when, after listing the contents of her pantry, quote, eye of newt and toe of frog, carbon crisp residue of manticore loin, a beaker of all-natural belladonna extract, unquote, she declares, quote, let's have Cheerios, unquote. However, I appreciated the complexity of Baba Yaga's character. She's not just an old crone out to eat unsuspecting children, but also someone with maternal instincts as strong as Aunt Sophia's. Overall, this was a really fun and imaginative read, free of the teen angst often found in YA novels, which I also have an aversion to. <laughs> it can be tough. It can be tough. Yeah, I have to put them down somewhere. <laughs> I recommend Egg and Spoon for anyone who likes their fantasies with equal parts history, fairy tale, and magic. When Ekaterina first stumbles into Baba Yaga's hut, the old woman offers her pink broth, saying, quote, Drink up, my dear. I find borscht a wonderful marinade when applied from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> She's so right. <laughs> yes. Fortunately, Ekaterina heeds Meester's warning that the soup is, quote, only lightly poisoned, unquote, <laughs> and takes a pass. You don't have to worry about poison or being marinated for a witch's enjoyment if you make your own borscht. I tried a recipe for red vegetarian borscht from the New York Times, and it came together fairly quickly and was absolutely delicious. Tons of veggies, including beets, enrich the broth and the vinegar and a touch of lemon juice add brightness to the beet's earthiness. We'll link to the recipe on our blog. My second pick for this month is a middle grade book. 
Ahimsa by Supriya Kelkar. It's about Anjali, a 10-year-old girl in India in 1942 whose mother has just decided to join the nonviolent resistance movement for independence that was led by Mahatma Gandhi. Anjali has lots of questions and wants to learn all about the movement and why her family is changing the way they think about the caste system and British rule in India. All the questions that Anjali asks throughout the book make the narrative a little stilted and explainy, but I think at the same time it would work really well for middle-aged kids. As with many things, there's a ton that I personally don't know about the fight for independence in India, so I actually ended up appreciating having a lot of things explained by the characters, especially in light of what's happening with the Hindu nationalist movement in India today. I very much appreciated the window into not only what life is like in India, but also the window into what it might be like to be a kid whose parents are involved in a dangerous political situation. Anjali's mother, at one point in the book, is imprisoned for several months for her work as a freedom fighter, and we get to see how Anjali continues the fight among and alongside her peers. We also get to see how her family, who are Brahmin caste and of the upper middle class, fail and do better in their efforts to be allies to the lower caste folks in their city. The book is deceptively simple and straightforward, but it's packed with cultural context and lessons in how to fight oppression alongside the oppressed. It is fairly fast-paced, unlike my first recommendation, and it made for a, a really quick read. It's about 300 pages, but I think I finished it in two sittings. Uh, I'd recommend it for anyone interested in that time period or anyone who enjoys historical fiction in general, but doesn't necessarily mind a younger main character. She's really endearing, so I, I hope some hope people pick this one up. Anjali's mother makes badam burfi as a sweet treat to celebrate Diwali, and it is traditionally made by blanching and peeling almonds and then grinding them to make almond paste. I found a recipe on the website Cook with Manali where you can save time and use almond flour instead of making your own almond paste. The treat is flavored with cardamom and a little bit of rose water and is kind of like marzipan but with a little bit of a thicker consistency so you can cut it into pieces and serve it like you would um, like a lemon bar or something like that. It comes together in about 20 minutes and is just the perfect bite for after dinner. We'll link to the recipe on the blog. That sounds absolutely delicious. <laughs> I know, I was really sad I didn't get to test the recipe yeah. before we recorded because it sounds great. Well, you'll have to report back if you do. I will. My second choice is Three Dark Crowns, a teen novel by Kendara Blake. Originally published in 2016, Three Dark Crowns is the first in a series by the same name, which concludes in four books with two supplemental novellas for history and lore. The setting is in a fictional world, and most of the action takes place on an island called Fenburn, which is surrounded by an impenetrable fog. Of sort course of like, it is. Well, yeah, of course. Because, <laughs> you know, teen moodiness, and they got to be away from everything. Exactly. Yeah. Think, think Themyscira from Wonder Woman. Oh, is that how you say that? I think it is. Uh, <laughs> I hope it is, because I just said it on a podcast. That, that sounds right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, uh, the story begins with a creepy rhyme to set the mood. Three of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> let's, be, let's be related. Okay. Three dark queens are born in a glen. Sweet little triplets will never be friends. 
Three dark sisters, all fair to be seen, two to devour, and one to be queen. As you're thinking of those words, picture children around the kingdom singing the rhyme while playing, you know, silly kids' games like jump rope or hopscotch or whatever the medieval fantasy equivalent would be. Like uh, uh, holding hands and spinning in a circle like Ring Around the Rosie. That feels, that feels about right, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ashes, ashes. I'll fall down. And want to be queen. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this rhyme sets the central theme of the story. Every generation a set of triplets, each possessing the embodiment of a special gift from the island's goddess, are born. Typically, there is a poisoner born with the gift of poison resistance and an aptitude for concocting deadly poisons. One naturalist gifted with dominion over animals and plant life, and one elemental who can manipulate storms, fire, water, and earthquakes. Triplets, always daughters, are raised together for a short time, then sent to live with representatives from their tribes that share their personal gift. After they are given time to hone their talents and prepare, When the triplets reach 16 years of age, year-long ceremonies are begun and the sisters are pitted against one another. The surviving sister then ascends to be Queen of Fenburn, raising the talents of her tribe and bringing them along to seats of power on the island council. The new queen will reign until she births the next set of triplets and the cycle begins again. We begin on the triplet's 16th birthday with Katarine, the Poisoner Queen. The poisoners have been in power for two generations now, and the tribe is strong as a result. The other tribes have grown to hate the poisoners for their unbalanced political influence and general cruelty. And Katerine is hated by most of Fenburn as a result. Her own tribe has put tremendous pressure on her to succeed so they can maintain their ruling status. However, despite undergoing tortuous training with her benefactors, Katerine has shown little proclivity for her gift. She experiences the full effect of any poison she ingests and has worked toward building natural resistances by repeated exposure to poisons to make up for the weakness of her gift. But while she is unable to use natural instinct for mixing poison, she has learned to mix effective poison through intelligence and practice. We then switch to Arsinoi, the naturalist queen. It's been a long time since a naturalist queen has ascended, and Arsinoi has shown no real ability in her gift, unlike her incredibly talented friend Jules. So the island doesn't expect Arsinoi to survive against her sisters, and she knows it. While she is surrounded by loving friends and family, Arsinoi is treated with contempt by her village, which has already labeled her a failure. With odds stacked against her, Arsinoi is faced with a seemingly insurmountable challenge for survival. While Arsinoi seems accepting of her own defeat, her close friends and family spur her on to live, no matter the cost to her or themselves. Finally, we are introduced to Mirabella, the elemental and top contender for ascendancy. While her sisters show little talent, Mirabella is said to be the strongest elemental in generations. Her powerful gift, along with the island's distaste for the long-reigning poisoners, has led to idolization by her fellow elementals, as well as an unorthodox support from the temple, who is meant to remain a neutral authority in the contest for the crown. Seen as a precious asset, Mirabella is constantly under the eye of her benefactors and the temple guard. Three Dark Crowns is a wonderful dark fantasy which speaks to a senior high audience by encouraging healthy questioning of authority and tradition 
portraying the importance of weighing consequences before taking action and coping with the burden of responsibilities. Seeing the story through multiple perspectives exposes the human nature of each character. So while one might see the other as a villain, the reader is aware that each character is guided by outside events and adhering to their own moral compass to the best of their abilities. So no one is truly a hero or a villain, but both are bound by the consequences of their actions. Uh, I felt compassion for all the sisters, and the story had me rooting for all of them at different points. The characters experience real loss, hardship, and bittersweet victories throughout. The only real criticism I had was the romance element in Three Dark Crowns felt tacked on. It was sort of like Blake had a fully recognized story and Harper Teen said, hey, add some romance and you've got yourself a publication. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the romance does improve later in the series, but it didn't feel strong enough to really include in the summary for this first book. Uh, That said, I do want to end on a strong note by saying I absolutely love this series. Um, For this dark yet nuanced story, I recommend a bittersweet hot cocoa. To make, heat one cup of milk in a saucepan. Add three teaspoons of Hershey's Special Dark Cocoa, two tablespoons of sugar or your preferred sweetener, and a dash of salt. Just just a dash, not like a teaspoon. Uh, Simmer and stir until well mixed, then pour into a mug and enjoy. For added intrigue, you could add flavors to represent your favorite queen. Try mint for stormy elemental Mirabella, vanilla or cinnamon for practical naturalist Arsinoi, or a bit of cayenne pepper for Katerine's poisoner kick. That sounds so good. I'm going to go with the cayenne pepper. Yeah, Yeah. it's really good. I've made it a few times. So my next book is Other Words for Home by Jasmine Warga. This middle grade novel in verse is a Newbery Honor book. So if you're participating in the Books and Bites Challenge, it would also count as an award winner. In Other Words for Home, 12-year-old Judah and her pregnant mother leave their home in a coastal city in Syria to seek refuge with Judah's Uncle Mazen, Aunt Michelle, and cousin Sarah in Cincinnati, Ohio. Judah's father and brother stay behind. Her father to mind the family's shop, her brother to join the resistance movement in Aleppo. The book focuses on Judah's life in this strange new place, settling into middle school, making friends, and even trying out for the school musical. It also explores the deep homesickness Judah feels for her friends and family back in Syria and shows what it's like for Muslims to experience Islamophobia. Don't be put off by the verse form of this short novel. It's narrative verse, so the book is never overly dense or hard to understand. The line breaks and spare language help convey the thoughts of a brave, observant girl trying to make sense of a major change in her life. I listened to Other Words for Home on audio, and Vanna Asadorian's natural but rhythmic narration makes Judah's voice and accent come alive. Although the book does have a message about empathy, it never feels heavy-handed. Warga shows rather than tells how to be kind through Judah's small but important interactions with fellow students in her ESL class, with her Lebanese-American and American friends, and with her family. 
At just under four hours on audio, Other Words for Home is a quick listen or read that, though brief, never lacks depth or emotion. Because her American aunt does most of the cooking, Judah and her mother begin eating American food almost immediately after they arrive. Judah learns to love foods like pizza and blueberry muffins, but she also misses the food she grew up with. Quote, rice, lamb, fish, hummus, pita bread, olives, feta cheese, za'atar with olive oil, unquote. When her mother fries cauliflower and roasts lamb for the family, Judah notices that her cousin Sarah is, quote, much more talkative than she usually is. Uncle Mazin is smiling too, she observes, and he looks at Mama and says, this tastes like home, unquote. Pair other words for home with any of the yummy sounding Syrian recipes in the book Feast, Food of the Islamic World by Anissa Halu. Or try your hand at frying cauliflower. Judah's mother doesn't need to look up the recipe online, but if you'd like some guidance, I found instructions on the blog Orange Blossom Water. We'll link to it on our website. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We produce the podcast in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. For more information about the podcast or the Books and Bites reading challenge, visit our website at jesspublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whidden from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. To learn more about Scott and his music, visit his website, thedoorforadesk.com.